Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Voice of Empyro. Today's episode is a little bit different to the others. It's a solo episode. Both Marco and Wendy were unable to make it for the recording. So it's just myself talking with our special guest, who for this week is Professor Tim Lynch, who runs a subject for the MIR in February called US Foreign Policy, which is, of course, his area of expertise. The topic we talked about was American foreign policy and the relationship between America and Australia. So despite the format being a bit different to usual, we hope you enjoy it all the same. Tim, why don't you uh, introduce yourself to our, our listeners? Hello, my name is Tim Lynch, and I'm a professor in American politics at the University of Melbourne. Would you want to talk a bit about some of the, the recent books that you've published? Yes, I write on contemporary US foreign policy, po- defined as post-Cold War foreign policy. Um, and I suppose my, my basic approach is to look at the continuity across those three decades, Um across the five, six administrations that we've had of both parties. Um, and also to argue more positively about where what America did in the post-Cold War era, which I realise is sometimes an uh, unpopular position. It's not a, an absolutist position. I think America is going through a time of great trial, but it still uh, represents significant strengths that are denied to its opponents. And that part of the argument, I think, needs to be written more fully into the debate about US decline. So what would what would some of these strengths be? Well, I think the fact that it is a nation, even though we think of it as a nation that's riven into two competing ideologies, it's a nation in a way that its great challenger in the modern era, China, for example, has to try really hard to maintain. China's great fear is that it's a series of, of, of disparate cantons of of regions that can fly apart in the absence of a strong central government. Whereas the United States doesn't, it has a government that's of course grown in power, but it doesn't need uh, the government to define its national identity. There's a strong sense of national identity, north and south, east and west, which is hard to find replicated in, in its competitors, like China, certainly like the EU, which doesn't stand for a nation at all. It's a, it's a set of nations in competition with with one another so we 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 uh shouldn't discount nationalism in its best sense in its cohesive sense as a as a deep american resource and there are lots of other um strengths that it has uh, i think it the fact that it embodies religious freedom that it doesn't have a history of religious warfare we know race is a big issue in american politics, but most nations, as they've risen to global power, from the, from the Romans up through the, the Reformation, Counter-Reformation, the <clears throat> wars of, the, uh, of the, the post-Cold War era outside of Europe have been defined by religion and, and religious conflict, whereas the US has escaped that, and its religion is a source of cohesion. Um, I, I also think it, it works, and over the long term, Tom, that's what nearly 25 decades it's gone from being irrelevant it being the the equivalent today of new zealand i don't mean that to disparage new zealand but of little economic geostrategic consequence at its birth to being the most consequential most powerful 
most feared uh, nation in the history of the world, that's got something to do with the, the nature of the experiment it's, it's running, the capacity of men and women to, to uh, express and enjoy individual rights um, with a government that doesn't in, invade them. Uh, lots of others. Uh, one more is, is the fact of immigration, I think, that immigration in the United States has been a remarkable success. People see themselves in it. It's still, even in an apparent decline, has the ability to attract migrants into its experiment. Um, China doesn't have that same attraction. People might want to go in, foreigners might want to go in, exploit China for some reason, and then get out. Um, whereas people see themselves in the United States. Even I mean, those that hate America want to end up there. That's yeah. a remarkable strength. And it's renewed generation after generation with each successive wave of immigration. I remember hearing in a, another podcast that the views towards the US and American people vary drastically in other Western countries compared to, say, developing countries. So the view, say, that someone from a, a developing country in Southeast Asia might have towards uh, the US would be much, or not so much the US, but American people would be much kinder than those, say, held by Australians. And I can definitely speak to that, where a lot of Australians seem to have kind of a, a prejudice towards Americans. Yeah. That's not, that, that's a good point. And that, of course, that's nothing new. The, the, the uh, metropolitan classes going back two and a half centuries have always uh, indulged a studied contempt for American power. From the very beginning, this nation of farmers and backwoodsmen was never going to succeed. I mean, Paris just disdained <clears throat> this experiment in self-government. And I think that's carried through. So metropolitan Melbourne and Sydney and Dublin and Paris and London, it's all a mark of sophistication to regard America as a rather crude experiment. Um, whilst those that, as you point out, that in the developing world, for whom America still represents a huge beacon of hope, that, that remains a, 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 a remarkable feature of global politics in the current moment. If you think one of the greatest enmities America has had in its, in its recent history, uh, Vietnam, uh, America fought a bloody war against North Vietnam, Vietnam in defense of the South. You would expect the legacy of bloodshed and the hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese that died to mean that America is a pariah state. No, it's, it's one of the closest relationships in contemporary Southeast Asia is the US-Vietnamese relationship. So what governments think and what government elites think, I, I don't think has ever been a re an accurate representation of the popular appeal of the United States, which only means they hate it more. Yeah, it's an interesting irony is um, often those that show in, just in among sort of common people that show that disdain for the US in Australia or elements of the US um, are often those who tune into MSNBC and are constantly looking yeah. at the political updates. Yes, yeah. it's also just it's, it's resentment that America has done them the great favour of leading mm -hmm. a world order in which nations like Australia and France and Germany have done really rather well. Mm. Um, now that's, perhaps that's, that's not a, 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 it's not reliable into the future. Well, we could have that argument, but to this point, the European experiment in, in transnationalism, um, Australian security, these have been underwritten by American blood and treasure. 
Um, people find it very hard to forgive a big favour. They, they want to be cohesive for lots of often left-wing ideas of equality and human rights and forget that actually it's, it's hard power and a willingness to deploy it and to stick around and use soft power resources to, to realise security and prosperity. Only America over the last hundred years has really had the capacity and the will to do that. Um, that doesn't mean it's the world hangs on what America does, and that's an exaggeration. And it wins the Second World War um, when, where most of the bloodshed is, is, most of the blood is spilt by the Soviet Union against, against uh, Nazism. But it's, it, Western Europe is in the state it is today, and let me put it to you, is prosperous mm. and free not because of any internal organic um, cosmopolitan notion of European identity, but because American troops occupied, divided, protected the United States from far worse experiments to its east. I think Australia is, is just, it's, it's different in, in degree, but not in, not in kind. Our security and the Labour Party of course, the, the, the mainstream left acknowledges this fact. It's underwritten by American arms. It's not sheer goodwill that creates prosperity. It has to be fought for and replenished, and that means you need a power to do it. And, and that's the role America has played. Has it played it perfectly? Well, no, of course not. Um, and it, it's found itself up against notions of civilization which do try and achieve perfection. So I want to look at Marxist notions of where the world is going. Mm. They scientifically assert that we're moving towards the sunny uplands of, of peace and, and uh, wealth for all. Um, and of course, they deliver the exact opposite when given power. Even in China's uh, state ideology, like at the moment, um, socialism with Chinese characteristics is uh, not quite the same um, like ideal of achieving perfection, but a similar one within the country yeah. of China itself. Yes, I think, I think that's true. I mean, China is a remarkable success story, as is the United States, and China's much quicker. Um, China, of course, also had to overcome the legacy, the importation of the worst form of European colonialism, mm. Marxism. It was never actually colonised by the East India Company and by nefarious capitalists from the West. It, it, it embraced an ideology of the German Marxist. And for any and its implementation under under Maoist in Maoist terms killed millions of people. It's only more recently, once I think America had, had, it, had it embraced it, brought it into the the global system. That's when its 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 uh, its wealth, the potential of the Chinese people, really really took hold. So in, in some ways, America remains the decisive player in global politics that even its opponents have a vested interest in seeing maintained. That is unusual in world history. Usually you have opponents that want to destroy the other. It's hard in even the, the most pessimistic scenarios to see what national interest is met by a, the diminution of the American market for China. Uh, China needs America to police its shipping lanes, to contain Japan, one of China's great failures in its across hundreds of years was to contain China, uh, Japanese militarism. Mm. America comes along and solves that in four years. So there is a there is a codependency built into the system, which again, to go back to our original point, yeah, yes, to me, America's got quite a long way to run.
Um, I recall being in an anthropology class in undergrad and the teacher or the tutor asked us a rather, a rather loaded question of is America an empire? And I remember the discussion on the little sort of table of students um, carried on to kind of debating the, um, the morality behind a lot of America's um, involvements in overseas conflicts. And I, I remember thinking, well, okay, if we humor that thought, America is an empire, America is imperialist, that imperialism saved South Korea. And mm. South Korea today would not exist in its, um, and it would not be prosperous if not for American hard power. Like there'd be no K-pop. That is a, for people my generation, that's a very difficult world to imagine. We'd only have North Korean communist synth pop. <laughs> yes, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's very true. And it, it's a very important question to ask, but a hard one to answer, is it an empire? Mm. It's an empire by invitation. And this is why the left, it drives the left nuts because empires to them are supposed to be the impositions of um, force, uh, inequity, inequality, racism, what name your mm. particular uh, bugbear, uh, by a by a ostensibly white power for reasons purely of its own aggrandizement and the exploitation of, of, of the, the population that's subject to in, imperial control. But this doesn't capture, it's a caricature that captures so little about how the world has worked over the last 70 years. Um, you look at one simple measure, there are about 150,000 American troops still stationed in Belgium, in Germany, in Japan, in Korea, in Italy, maybe a little higher, maybe up, uh, up close to 200,000. And they're there not to subjugate the people, not to drive them into cinemas where they, they have to watch Tom Cruise films. They're not dragooned into wearing denim. They're there because their governments and their people, not all of them, but the mainstream people in these nations want America to be there. Um, America has a far harder problem pulling out its power mm. than it does of inserting it. And I'd just ask you to consider that over the last, over the post-Cold War era, where, why has America got, in, it got itself into trouble? It's got itself into trouble, not by running imperial projects, but by lacking the will to see imperial projects through. Mm. And, the, and the, the original sin, oh, there are many, but the original sin in 2003 of refusing to invade Iraq with sufficient men under arms, using too few troops, which meant you could knock off the dictator and the regime quite straightforwardly, a matter of days. But then over weeks, months and years, you do not have men and women in uniform on the ground to police the state, to give hope to the people that you've just liberated. It's an absence of imperial will. It's an insufficiency of this colonising spirit, which accounts for far more problems in the world than the opposite. It's a far cry from same. what happened in Korea. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, I, mean, I would you rather be in North Korea or South Korea? South Korea is sponsored by American blood and treasure. North Korea is sponsored by Chinese blood and treasure. Now, I'm, unless you're peculiar, and there are some people who are peculiar and prefer Pyongyang to uh, Seoul, I yeah. think most normal people, even on the left, that want to uh, enjoy wealth, and uh, freedom of speech and good coffee will always want to be in the American-sponsored project. Does it mean American power is perfect? Well, of course it doesn't. Um, and America has a record of brutality 
and of carelessness. But I think what's more important to try and understand is the carelessness, is that absence of imperial will. And the, the, the final and most damning recent example, of course, is Afghanistan. Mm. Uh, its enemies are perplexed that America would spend 20 years investing in a nation that it really had no hope could achieve anything, and then pulling out in the most comical fashion, um, the most powerful state in the history of the world, confronted one, with one of the poorest, and the poorest one, or elements within the poorest nation, has managed to send America packing. So no, I, I don't buy this, this, this straw man that America's detractors set up. America is imperial, it's always invading. Well, it may, it, it, it has a high, kind of hyperactive um, use of the military. You, you likes to use the military as a kind of equivalent of a Swiss army knife, but it doesn't stick around. And colonizing powers stick around. America doesn't do that. It's got the great, what's the, what's the great biggest grossing film franchise in American history, Tom? Star Wars, a war against an evil empire. This is a, this is a nation born against empire. Um, it was a chief catalyst of the demise of the British empire through the 20th century. It, it helped, was decisive. Um, in, in bringing down the Soviet Empire, the, the German Reich, the Japanese Empire, they all fell through the application of US power. America doesn't do empire, it stands against it, which makes calling it an, an imperial power uh, 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 slippery. I mean, it's a concept used more to denounce than it is to actually explore and explain. Yeah, it's definitely misleading in some ways. I remember hearing that the Empire in Star Wars was based partially off Richard Nixon's America, but I can't remember recall when I heard that. I think that was, was yes. Yeah, so it's, it's it's all it all takes shape in the in the fallout over Watergate in seventy six, yeah. the year they elect their their worst president in U.S. history as a kind of um, way of cleansing the system of Nixon, Jimmy mm. Carter. Um, Yes, but I, I think the, the point here is that America does have this kind of <clears throat> incapacity to see itself as the as the uh, as the baddies. Um, it, it stands for decolonization, rather ironically, because in, in the in the modern academic parlance, parlance, the U.S. is usually charged with being the great colonizer. It's not. It's the it's the the the, the it's the genesis, the home for every mainstream civil rights movement that we've seen over the last 60 years. Women's rights, um, abortion rights, uh, prisoner rights, uh, LGBT rights, uh, they all have their beginning, um, not exclusively in terms of how they play out, but their important beginnings are American. Um, the Soviet Union gave us no movement of freedom. Middle East, no, China, no. It's the, it's the great engine of civil rights. Um, mm. And that's, that's, that's often forgotten in this rush to, uh, to denounce it and to prop up its, its ideological challenges. On this and on a, a point from earlier, I remember learning in anthropology, I can't remember which theory it is exactly that, um, cultures that have think more things in common perhaps than differences often find themselves in a lot of conflict over like, uh, like contested symbols. And when you see countries like Australia versus America versus Canada, um, you know, Anglophone Western countries, there's a lot in common. And I, I wonder if that could be a, a point of tension between 
um, these cultures and, and the US culture. Yes, it's, that's an interesting notion. I, mean, I think the American experiment represents in some ways the best of Europe and in time over the course of American history, the best of Asia. Um, Africa is a more complicated legacy um, because most of the immigrants, certainly in, in the initial phase, were compelled to go there. In, in every other case, uh, America was chosen um, by the immigrants. Now, why, why do I preface the answer that way? Because I think um, what Europe and Asia couldn't deliver, America could. So I mentioned the, the religious wars, which tore Europe apart for a thousand years. Um, the Middle East, again, claimed the home of uh, the, the prophet, the land of the, the prophet, um, great claim to civilizational universalism. And yet the, those, their people enjoy the greatest freedom when they leave it and go to the US. So there's, some, there's an antipathy built into the country denuded of its citizens because America has absorbed them. And that, I think, explains some of the, the ongoing antipathy that, that you get between U, the U, US and, and, and Europe. There's a, I mean, it's also worth remembering, I think, that um, we do have a notion now that Europe in some ways realised some permanent stage of peace, which we call the European Union. Mm. And if we forget just how bloody it was. I mean, the Holocaust was a, was a, was a European phenomenon, a German, one of the most advanced nations in in, in world history, um, perpetuated that that terrible genocide. So, the the idea that um, that civilizational intra civilizational conflict has been erased, I think, is 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 something of a something of a stretch. Yeah. Regarding Australia, what does it's a bit of a broad question, but what do you think Australia sort of means to America as it, as it is at the moment? Well, it it's, a good, it's a good question, the appropriate question to ask him where, where we are. I think as a general rule, we think about Austra America more than Americans think about Australia. Mm. And that's for the obvious, fairly obvious reasons, which any good realist I think would be able to explain. America is a big, important power that can afford not to have to think about other nations and we're a middling, small to middling power that requires the support and help, the protection of a big power mm. like the US. So America, for, for some security reasons, remains front and central in, in Australian consciousness. And also then in, in popular consciousness that I don't encounter, I've encountered very few Australians that don't have some love of the United States, even those that disdain its, its claimed imperialism, mm. really rather enjoy skiing in Aspen or driving Route 66. Um, but it, but it, is, it tends to be more one way. Uh, Australia, uh, Americans don't think about Australia, um, not in any profound... And, and uh, I'm doing a, an interview for the, um, the Robert Menzies Institute, the new institute, which is, <clears throat> has a base on on the campus. So it was looking through some of the, some books some important seminal works on um, US foreign policy about the post, post Second World War era. And it is remarkable to see how little Australia gets mentioned. Hmm. Signing of ANSUS, the ANSUS Treaty in 1951 was central, has been central 
to uh, Australian security, but it barely registers in 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 thinking, academic and political thinking about American power. I know there's some, and the people some people specialise, but America has tended to look into Europe, or it's tended to look west into Asia, rather than to be concerned about Australia. There's also just a, a final observation here. I didn't. Yep. I come from the, the UK originally, um, and I, I thought those two nations, the UK and America, had one of the closest relationships diplomatically and culturally. But I think Australia trumps that. I think I've not seen a nation that more synchronises, not everybody in both nations, of course, share this, but as a general rule, there is no... Uh, I can't think of a nation more designed, you could look at opinion poll data on this, I think, to, to prove it, more designed to to, po- to press positive Australian buttons than the US and vice versa. They, they, they really get on. Um, and the fallouts between them are, are not minor and not, not, not trivial and, not, and certainly uh, and, and do exist, but they're, they're nothing like the fallout that the UK and France has had with the US over the last uh, 70 years. So Australia does have a, a unique position, but it's one we shouldn't exaggerate. Um, I don't think American presidents go to bed worrying about Australia, and I don't think they wake up worrying about Australia. They should probably come and visit our emus, and then they might start having nightmares. Well, it's, um, it's, uh, it's a little Australian Trump, joke there. They, they, they all, um, at some point now, LBJ was the first, wasn't he, I think, president to visit Australia. With, sorry, trivia now. Herbert Hoover was the first man who then became, subsequently became president mm-hmm. to visit Australia, but it was in his pre-presidential days. Okay. But now it's regarded as, a, it's as basic as, as visiting London or, or Berlin. Yeah. A um, couple of questions here. Would you say that the Australia-US relationship got um, stronger during Vietnam? Sounds like a probably an obvious question, but well, I think winning would have would have helped, um, but of course they didn't. Hmm. Um, well, I mean, one could argue argue that they lost this battle but won the wider war. But but I, I think that was the great that was the most challenging episode in in the bilateral relationship, hmm. um, and and Britain, of course avoided it said this is this is this war is no good um, and kept out whereas australia i don't think it's as simple as having to show loyalty um, but for important reasons of loyalty decided to sign up to the american cause i mean i wasn't alone in this uh, south korea joined up as did as did thailand um and the the america the, the australian contingent was more culturally powerful than it was uh, logistically vital, although um, it, it, it lost men in, in struggling now to remember the loss of life in Vietnam by, by Australia. 58,000 Americans died, a very much tiny proportion, even, even relative to population, died of, amongst Australians. But it, it showed yeah. a willingness to, to back an American loser which um, su- successive Australian prime ministers thought was worth demonstrating. 
the, the fundamental dilemma that confronts and has confronted all Australian prime ministers since the demise of British imperial power is how you realise security in a, in a part of the world which is difficult to reach, where your, much of your wealth is going to be contingent on doing deals with a power whose ideology you are not simpatico with, China, yeah. um, whilst expecting um, America to come to your aid simply because you embody, embody some common civilizational identity. That's a, that's a tough balancing act for any Australian prime minister. Mm. But one I think that they pulled off really pretty well. I mean, the Australian success story, though we're sort of now schooled to think of our history of Australia as essentially shameful, of course, there is profound shameful elements built into the, the national story. Um, but it, it, the success of it to go from a, a crown colony, a prison, penal colony to being one of the most prosperous, um, healthy and free democracies in the world has got something to do with backing the American, first backing the British horse, I mean, unavoidably, because it was a British colony, mm. but then backing the American one. That has to be part of the story. Um, you know, China has been hugely consequential, of course. But as Hugh White said, what China, what Australia wants is to benefit from Chinese wealth, but to be protected from its power. And that requires ever closer military union with the United States. Yeah, sort of an interesting hedging act, I guess. It is. That's a good yeah. way of putting it, Tom. Yes, it, it's a recurrent act of hedging forced on it by, by its, its power resources. If you're not a big power, small powers do what they uh, big powers do what they can. Small powers do what they must. Mm. Although we, we look big and impressive on the map, we're tiny coastal people. Um, that that if we're going to have influence and are going to afford ourselves protection via that influence, you've got to make nice with the big big guy. And the big guy was once London. The big guy is now Washington. Mm. The new dilemma, although I think it's less a dilemma, um, is how far Beijing could replace Washington. Well, it wasn't quite a seamless transition, London to Washington, but pretty much. I think that the ruptures and cultural political dislocations trying to move loyalty from Washington to Beijing would be just too great. Before we go into that, I recall hearing at the, the US consulate in Melbourne during a, an Empire event that from the US side, there's kind of a an appreciation on diplomatic levels for a country that is so easy to talk to that there's kind of like positive people-to-people -people relations mm -hmm. between the US and Australia and that this is something they don't have with that many other countries. Or I'm sure they have it with other um, yeah. countries in the Anglosphere where there's similar culture, but yeah. it's um, perhaps not on the same level as it is with Australia. Yes, I think, and there are lots of explanations of that. I think language is a very important one. It's much easier to be mm. pally with someone whose language you, you share. But, uh, but that doesn't explain why New Zealand had a much more rocky relationship with the US um, in the 1980s, with, withdrawing from uh, American nuclear protection. In, 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 <laughs> the trick that New Zealand tried to pull off 
there's a good deal of repository of sentiment that still pushes <laughs> this line that it, it wants to be protected by the United States, but not to host its ships. Well, that seems to me untenable anyway, but I use that just as an illustration that language is not a, a guarantee of cohesion. But yes, as we've said, there is a, a cultural um, commonality, a shared sense of belonging, of identity, mm-hmm. We have federal systems, we're continental nations, we're both product of the same mother country. All these uh, have favoured Australian uh, security over, over the long term. We were, we were colonised by the right power. I don't mean right power in, in, a, in a crude ideological sense, but mm-hmm. a power that realised its interests would come through the propagation of the rule of law, through uh, free trade through religious freedom, through freedom of speech. Um, that the, the colonial regimes that privilege those sorts of tendencies, not perfect, um, but those which, which uh, propagated those tendencies tend to, tended to pass on much stronger, better, more cohesive societies than the ones that were much more centralised. And I, I mean, it's, it's an unfashionable argument to have, but it doesn't mean we shouldn't have it. That the legacy of the British Empire, though with uh, many shameful episodes in it, mm. is a much stronger one than the history of the, the French colonial experiment. And, I, and I'd say just in terms of the wealth of those that were subjected to it, um, the security of those subjected to it, the freedom, political and otherwise, you'd much rather have suffered under British imperialism than under any than under any of its European rivals. But again, I don't want to keep banging away at the caveat. It doesn't mean it's perfect, but I don't think we should measure any nation's history, let alone one as big and 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 uh, and varied as, as the British Empire in in uh, in only one way. Hmm. I think uh, I can feel the ghost of Gough Whitlam uh, sort of breathing over my shoulder. <laughs> so I should probably um, sort of ask about the uh, the Whitlam dismissal and um, what that meant for Australia. It's it's one thing that I believe people my age are sort of um, looking at through a bit of a revisionist lens, wondering, was this a uh, an issue that involved only Australian parties and the um, uh, Buckingham Palace? Or would there also have been CIA involvement? Um, there was, a, I think the quote from the CIA was our man Kerr, referring to um, the governor general. Um, and it's, it's something that's quite frustrating because I don't think the palace letters uh, have been released. And it, it seems you can't get a whole lot of the, the juicy information that a lot of Australians my age would like to find. Um, it's interesting. Yeah. Do, do, do Australians of your age are they are they still fascinated by the the Whitlam dismissal? I mean, I'm delighted they're they're fascinated by any episode in history. Mm. Uh, you're, you're you're going to take take me beyond my pay grade here because I'm not a not a student of 1970s Australian politics. But I, as far as I'm, I'm aware, the explanations for it are much more mundane than they are conspiratorial. Um, I mean, it's a wider conversation. About the the role of the British of, of the British Crown in Australian politics, which continues to fascinate me, um, and I think re- requires more reasoned debate than simply denouncing its 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 uh, 
it's 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 cruder manifestations and the Whitlam dismissal might might be one of those but I don't know of any nefarious Australian and um, any nefarious American CIA designs in that episode but I, I counsel you this this ain't this ain't my area Tom no that's okay um, well, it's not especially my area. Whitlam didn't do himself any favours by falling out with uh, Richard Nixon. Mm. Um, so I, d- I don't think he was uh, any, I think his foreign policy was deeply problematic. In some ways, he's been held as a hero because he was a failure. Well, okay, but that doesn't mean he was dismissed. We often do that in Australia, it seems. <laughs> but, but, Ed Kelly. So, yes. Um, but, yes, I think... Uh, Whitlam on China, I think, was was the extent to which he opened China is is exaggerated. Mm. Um, but he recognised some of the the huge importance that China would have to the Australian economy, which all his successors have have traded on. So, what ways do you think it might be a bit exaggerated? I I think he it it was the American opening of China through Nixon who Whitlam fell out with, which, I mean, I think the Chinese people themselves or certainly their leaders are, of course, much more consequential than any foreign force. Mm. But it's hard to imagine China's rise without the ingenuity of Nixon-Kissinger diplomacy in the early 1970s. And uh, Whitlam, I think, grasped that, but I don't think he was a catalyst. Yeah, I think the, the, the penetration of the... Australian economy by China was of much longer duration. So I think his, his foreign policy record is is not as great as his, as his proponents need it to be or want it to be. Yeah. Regarding the dismissal itself, you have a... Um, there's, I think there's a sense among a lot of Australians that uh, we sort of want to believe kind of a conspiratorial argument that we are, you know, we're about to get a much more um, sort of independent Australia in a non-aligned movement. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, mysteriously it, it, it shut down. But I guess if you, if you humour an Occam's razor sort of argument, then yeah. you'd, it would point towards mundane factors. Yes, yes. I mean, you're right to, I think, point out that th- this craving for conspiracy is it's not unique to Australia, but it is a, certainly apparent in Australia that things can only happen because of some out, outside force manipulating, pulling the strings, mm. uh, and the dismissal plays into that, that conspiracy thinking quite well. And it's wrapped into the, the ongoing argument, though it seems to have fallen away in the time, in the 10 years I've been in Australia, whether, whether it should be a republic. Mm. Now, America offers a very good example of a, of, a, of a successful nation that threw off the shackles of the British ground um, and did rather well. But it, America is often not harnessed in that argument. America in some ways is seen as another informal imperial power mm. weighing on, on Australia's leftward march towards transnationalism and, and cosmopolitanism. Um, but it's always struck me that if you want a good example of a nation that's thrown off, thrown off the, the British crown, then America is it. Um, perhaps Australia could learn a lesson or two from from that. It could, perhaps, yeah. Um, I mean, do you does Australia want a? I mean, I, 
I hold no candle. I mean, I'm, I'm not quite ambivalent, but I, I don't get deeply invested in the Republican argument for, for and against. It seems to me Australia's key national security objective is to make sure that it remains in alliance with the United States. Now, does a republic advance that? Well, yes, possibly. Possibly. I don't think that's the reason to do it. Um, I also just have concerns that if you replace a benign monarch that has no power with a, an elected politician president, doesn't guarantee to me that you're going to get any better government. Yeah, it, it, there are like quite a few different arguments on, on both sides. One, one argument against it is that I've heard, which is if there's no way or, or if there's no proposal to include the Indigenous people of the country in sort of a new Republican constitution, is it, is it worth it? That's one, one argument I've heard. Another is that it's sort of like a, a symbolic kind of emotional wish to have Australia with maybe a, uh, a different flag that's um, uh, less, less similar to the British one and sort of just appear more independent even if tangibly it doesn't actually change much of what Australia does and who yes, it aligns with. I, I, I buy some of that. Symbolism yeah. matters. Mm. I also think history matters. Um, and I think there's, there's, there's more that was good in the connection to suggest it should be sustained than there was bad, but there was plenty of bad too. Mm. But it, it, the, these questions are the proper preserve of big national decisions, either of government or through referenda. Um, same was true of Brit Britain's connection to Europe without getting into the whole Brexit, Brexit debate but the parallels with the, the debate over the Australian Republic are, are quite strong they're often overlooked but what, what the British were voting for was whether they wanted to be more independent or less from the European Union well, the Australian debate over the Republic is they want to be more or less independent from the British crown. And you can imagine it if we voted 52% to leave, mm. to leave um, the British Commonwealth and the forces behind the 48%, 48% said, no, you can't. We don't like your decision. And we're going to drag it out over years and I hope you'll change your mind. You can imagine how outraged we would have, been in Australia, but that's how Brexit played out. Mm. Although with leaving, I guess this is probably getting into the Brexit debate, if leaving the EU versus Australia leaving the British Commonwealth is uh, like involves more changes versus a kind of a, a title change and potentially yeah, a flag symbolic. change. Yes, yeah. it's, it's symbolic. I mean, I, I think Brexit, people really felt... Um, the, the strength of opinion for and against the European Union was profound. And I don't think the strength of opinion, unless you go to the extremes of Australian politics, is really that, uh, that important. Mm. Um, it, it's, it's not powerful enough, the, the British government, to create... Uh, people don't march against it. I mean, it, it has its moments, and yeah, the Whitland dismissal and... Uh, and the, and 
I don't think of another episode which is which is ruptured Australian-British relations. I'm struggling to find one. Chances um, are the moment we stop recording, it'll come back into mind and <laughs> yeah. But yes, the, the connection is is uh, not great enough to generate the the, the force to, to to get independence, but that could change. I mean, they, these things change over time. I was then going to ask about Kevin Rudd and Barack Obama, which is another instance, I believe, of an Australian prime minister not getting on particularly well with a US president. And my, my understanding is that in relation to Afghanistan, Kevin Rudd became unpopular among American generals because of less commitment than before to the peacekeeping effort and, um, and the war, which may have driven some of a wedge into the Australia-US relationship in, in that regard. Um, now, of course, I would be humoring another conspiracy, I guess, that uh, America was, or the embassy was involved in um, Rudd being ousted from power. It does look a little bit suspicious, I guess, that you have a very popular prime minister who one day is told by the um, the deputy prime minister, you're out, mate. Um, <laughs> I've never heard that theory, but I think his opponents in the Labour Party were of a much greater consequence than the yeah. CIA in, in Rudd's. <laughs> I, I guess to prove that conspiracy, <laughs> you'd need to find documents proving a link between Julia Gillard or her supporters and then the US embassy. Yes, I think you're, uh, I mean, yeah. she was ambitious, but was she uh, capable of a conspiracy so immense that she had Barack Obama in a corner? No, I think that's nonsense. <laughs> the, the, uh, of course, Rudd, to, to give him his due, doesn't get very long with another progressive leader in the US, in Obama. Um, it's into Obama's second year isn't it when when Rudd is is toppled by Gillard but the the ex the expectation was the kind of um bilateral strength that Howard and Bush uh brought um in the war on terror I mean rock solid allies are only only bested um by Tony Blair's connection to to George W Bush so there, there was an expectation that Rudd would be able to gifted a a, a, a Barack Obama, a, you know, a progressive president, would be able to push the alliance in a new direction. But it didn't work that way. I just think I think fundamentally Obama was not serious about this region. His pivot to Asia was a kind of empty gesture. He was much more interested in in turning America into a European, a EU-style power, hmm. big welfare spending, um, less reliance on arms. I, I just don't think he ever really took Australia seriously. It doesn't, I think, you know, I reviewed his book, um, his autobiography, and I think I'm right in saying there's not a single reference to Australia. Not one. I know it's only the first first volume but it's a it's a huge tome and there's yeah. not there's not one reference to australia um which illustrates the point i made earlier that mm. american diplomats and leaders think about australia when they have to um it's not we're we are too far south and we are too small too empty to represent the kind of uh we're not pivotal british britain is an island 
off the coast of one of the most rivalrous, economically, ideologically significant continents in the world, Europe. Mm. Um, and it's always going to be more important to, to American power for that reason. Or is Australia? When it, when, we're it, we're it, it was said the same, the same was said of Chile. We're a, Chile is a dagger pointing at the heart of Antarctica. I mean, it just doesn't, it's inconsequential. Mm. Um, so, yeah, unless Tasmania just turns into a powerhouse all of a sudden. Yes. And yeah. But it does. Uh, um, that's why Australian leaders, the priority has got to be to stay on the American radar. We are here and we stand with you. We not, may not be on the front line of these challenges, though there are occasions they were. Yeah. We were, we were attacked by the Japanese. Our homeland was attacked in a way that America's homeland was not at, at Pearl Harbor. Um, so keeping Australian security tied to a popular conception of American security has been a, a key challenge of every prime minister since, since Robert Menzies. Yeah, it goes back to what we were saying earlier about the um, balancing between America for uh, like kind of traditional ideas of security and then China for economic prosperity. Yes, it, it wants to, uh, it wants, it wants both. And that's, that's a hard thing to balance. Um, it wants, it, it wants the low interest on one credit card, but it wants the freedom to use a high interest credit card. Mm. And, and if you know how credit cards work, you, you like to retain what you think is the freedom to swap between them. Yeah. And, but that freedom eventually runs out. Uh, and that's when I think uh, Australia, its security does depend on, on retaining American loyalty. And, it's, and, and in a moment, Hugh White uh, has written uh, compellingly about this and, and Rory Metcalf as well, that um, it's, it's increasingly an unrequited love that Australia pledges loyalty and affection to a United States, which increasingly either doesn't hear it or doesn't care. Hmm. And that is a problem for it, for us. Yeah. For Australia. I think it's something like a lot of Australians just don't consider is, is that, um, that idea that Americans are not thinking about us that much. Yeah. Yeah. There's perhaps less drama than we'd like to think. Yes. In that it's regard. not the UN that will protect Australian security. It's not international law that will do that. It's uh, if we ever got to a shooting match in Asia, we would be without American support. Um, we would be sitting ducks, even allowing for the buff, huge buffer zone that we have. Mm -hmm. Our interests in the region are so deep and 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 manifest that in the absence of American protection, Australia would face a, a, a key challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that that that's not easily replaced, and not, and not replaced by, by as I say, by international law, by sheer goodwill. You, you need the threat of force, and America brings that to the table. Hmm. So, with it being three o'clock, um, I'm I don't think we'll end right away. If you've got some some extra time, I've definitely got two, got two minutes more. Then I've got to jump to another Zoom. Two minutes more. Am I allowed to ask you about Afghanistan? Yeah. So, well, I think that it's. Obviously, necessarily unavoidable. Yeah, um, and it's hard to, to. America pledges blood and treasure uh, 
was that two trillion over 20 years uh thousands of dead tens of thousands of dead on the the afghan side mm. to return <laughs> to power a a group that they expelled from power two decades ago it's a signal failure i called it of american imperial will i think it's it's that for sure and also just a failure to appreciate how vital prestige is in international relations that mm. if your claim and it's biden's strong claim that america is back but the first thing that you do is to turn tail on those that have pledged loyalty to you including and i don't use this for mere rhetorical purposes uh, women and girls who have ex experienced an extraordinary birth of freedom and of education over the last two decades to sacrifice all that for smaller political reasons at home mm. uh, the the long-term consequence of that is Amer an america that will not be trusted by its allies yeah do you think that there's an argument to be made that a failure of america's in this was investing more in the afghan military than say um like afghan um like infrastructure building funding schools and just sort of like nation building yes I, I, perhaps if we're asking the, the question the wrong way around it's not mm. what could it have done something better well every all governments could do something better could it have built more sure. yes could it have selected better politicians in fact it didn't do the selecting well certainly not down in the in the in the in the work of democracy where uh, all the ordinary gray men and women make the difference it didn't play a big role it was important in in selecting leaders and 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 uh socializing them but it, it the, the point was not what it could do the real question i think is was it prepared to stay um so it wasn't let's do all this and in two decades time we can go it was we have to stay the same reason they stay in military terms in those nations we mentioned earlier germany japan south korea your 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 mission is it's it's is in perpetuity not time limited mm. there is something in the american soul which militates against these kinds of occupations as we've said which is it fundamentally and worryingly anti-imperialist um, and the price has been paid on the Bagram airfield in Kabul by those men and women that thought America was capable of, of going the distance. Mm. And that, that, that will, I say it's not, it's not a unique problem, Tom. It's a problem that the United States often finds itself in. If you go back to the 1870s when Union troops withdrew their occupation of the Confederate, defeated Confederate states, well, you got you got a temporary peace, but it, the long term consequence was the continued oppression of African Americans. The reconstruction was was promised and not delivered, and they've done it currently. That sort of almost acts as like an explanation for the the issues in the South today, and um, events like Charlottesville. Yes, I, 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 I think all, all, all contemporary problems have an historical explanation yeah. and, and, and context. But it, it, does, it does surprise me, and we, we started with these observations, probably 
good to close with them. But yeah, it is a it's a power which distrusts power. The U.S. Constitution is about controlling power. All its rivals, Marxism, communism, fascism, um, they're all in some way dedicated to the opposite proposition, that if we can centralise all power into one man or one class or one race, everything will be fine. Mm. Whereas the United States says, no, if you concentrate power, you will get tyranny. So they diffuse power. They make power extraordinarily difficult to hold. They oblige men and women to compete for it. Uh, and yet, so it's, it's founded on a mistrust of power, and yet it's become the most powerful state in the world history. But, with a, but because of this political science origin, it's extremely reticent to use power. It's an anti-power that finds itself obliged to use it, where peoples all around the world expect it to use its power, and it doesn't. It cuts and runs. It's an extraordinary thing to study because it, it doesn't do what both its key proponents and its key opponents predict of it. It's a complicated experiment in how to, how to deal with power and its consequences. And it causes it huge problems. Do you think that there's a, like that kind of explains the, um, this sort of fundamental tension you get between um, communist states and the US like historically. So before the Cold War, a kind of disdain in the American mindset of um, communism, you know, when the Bolsheviks came to rise and came to power in Russia, mm. this mistrust of the system. Yes, there's also basic jealousy that America shouldn't work, but, but does, um, commands a loyalty that communism was never, never able to. Mm. Um, and that, that, I think in part because they're both predicated in opposite understandings of political science. They both tend to be scientific experiments mm. in government. I mean, scientific socialism. If you went to, to um, university in the Soviet Union, you would have, you'd be obliged to study scientific socialism. Mm. Whereas America has a political science, but their two sciences are, are, are very different. One distrusts power. The other one privileges it. In, in the right hands, mm -hmm. the hands of the proletariat or the dictatorship of the proletariat. One works and is still around despite setbacks and the other one doesn't exist anymore. Mm. Except in bizarre uh, holdouts like um, uh, Havana and Pyongyang. Yeah. I, I, I'm a, the, the great phrase of the current moment is trust the science. Well, mm -hmm. I reckon trust American the science of the American founders. They didn't give us a perfect vehicle for human freedom, but I take it over all, all, the, all the alternatives that have been presented. Yeah, there's definitely a, uh, an argument to be made there. And I can't leave this Zoom call without asking you this question. Have you, or are you familiar with the game Hitman, the, the video game? No. Okay. Well, the only reason I'm asking is because you have an incredible likeness to the main character who appears on the cover <laughs> of the game. With um, uh, I wish I was getting the royalties. Except he has a he has like a, a barcode tattoo on the back of his head. So <laughs> that's if coming. You, sure. Sure. Dan you, Andrews will sort that out for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If if you ever need to like attend a cosplay event or anything, there's just a suggestion there for. Okay. Now we'll look that up. <laughs> 
But um, thanks so much, Tim. This has been a very, very interesting discussion. And uh, I felt uh, very out of my depth um, conducting this interview. No, not, not at all. You ask good questions. Um, and uh, I'd, I'll, I'll happily do this any time. There are a lot of other good people that don't agree with me. You also should interrogate. Stay yeah. brave out there. It's great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Tim.